The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy. I'm here with my lately regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Great. And certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repka, who also works with me. Good morning. David's still locked in his dungeon in the basement. <laughs> He's not here today, but that's fine. I, we have I'm plenty sure to talk to, about. And I'm sure he'd love to be here. Well, you know, it just works better live. You know. So you can call with your questions at 356-9397. Just a minute, I'm trying to get my screen working here which is not, uh, 356-9397, or you can text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results, and of course you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor or consultant. So I'm uh, just trying to get in here, guys. Um, well, Fred, we're gonna get this vaccine going. Yeah. Maybe that's why the stock market is at all-time highs. I have a funny little story. Um, I have a client that's been with me for, I don't know, my 37 years, maybe it'll be uh, 25 of them. And he reminded me in a voicemail message the other day, and he said, congratulations on third Dow 30,000. This was about a week ago, right. I guess. He said, you may not remember, but when the Dow crossed 20, I mean 10,000, 20, 20 years ago or so, I think it was March of, February, March of 2000, he said, you know, he goes, I was really wondering, like, how much higher could it go? And he yeah. said, oh, you'd see 30000 in my lifetime. He said, well, so congratulations. Right. And he had a spectacular bottle of champagne, better than I've ever, I haven't even had it yet. Um, maybe I need to have 60 years like Oriole Samuelson, right. and then I'll open it up if, if it lasts that long. And it just, you know, it's, it, that's just kind of interesting for me to even go and think back about, because there was so much to worry about at Dow 10,000, and... And the, one of the comments I frequently made back then when it ran over 10,000 was people would always naturally, just because of the business we're in, they'd say, oh, what do you think the market's going to do yeah. next? I'd say, well, I'm not as concerned about the next 1,000 points on the Dow up or down. I'm more interested in making sure that me and you know, my family captures the next 10,000 points. Now, I'm sure we, uh, we've crossed that. 10,000 number more than one time, too. So, <laughs> yeah, Yes, we have. We got to revisit it and much lower in 2008, 2009. Such is the nature of markets. That, right. Such is the nature of history. Such is the nature and history being the, the study of surprises. Um, I, guess, I guess it would be foolish, Fred, if one wouldn't expect that over one's future lifetime that we'll, there'll be no short... Uh, Shortage of surprises that right. you know from the economic standpoint, and then therefore the stock market X point. Well, that's the uh, we say that's the price of being in equities, and uh, the price is usually well worth it in most cases. And that is the price, isn't it? It's just the unpredictable, un unpredictable nature of what are stock returns going to be next year. Well, best guess is they might be up twenty percent. They could be down twenty percent or so, and. That's what attracts guys, uh, so many people, to fixed income producing investments like CDs and short-term bonds. Things are very stable. Things that are not really impacted by all the craziness, either politically speaking or economically speaking. Um, but yet, for most people, having all of their money in income-producing investments, particularly now, I think it'd be, historically speaking, one of the worst fixed income markets for people that are relying on income from their income producing investments. So it all comes back to, look, you either put up with some unpredictability and then some insecurity on the front end of retirement or, and if you go overdo that, you have, you've, you've, you have the risk of failing quickly. Um, or if you have a hundred percent of your money in CDs for most people, they're going to have a lot of insecurity on the back end of their retirement and they're risking, you know, uh, Failing slowly, I guess is the best way I would put it. And uh, but so far so good, Fred. I mean, who would have thought um, with all this going on? And I, I, I don't know about you, but when people ask me, well, how can the stock market be at all time highs? I said, well, we're just a few months away, if even that, from a vaccine. And isn't that really saying right. the, the stock market is 
looking at the next six to six months to maybe 18 months or 24 months. Sure. And the, the, we're in this kind of strange situation because the short run news is pretty negative in terms of resurgence of uh, COVID, but yet the uh, medium term, uh, several months out, is very positive with not just one vaccines, but a number of vaccines. So th- this suggests that the, as we often say, that the uh, uh, stock market is as forward looking. It's not based on what's going to happen in the next uh, next few weeks. And again, the other thing which uh, we've talked about in the past is that the uh, uh, interest rate now is very close to zero in terms of the real rate after you take into right. account inflation. So uh, I, I sent you an article this, this week. Uh, Robert Schiller is a Nobel Prize winning economist who's almost always negative about, uh, about mm-hmm. the stock market saying it's overvalued. Now he suggested it's probably not because of the uh, interest uh, rate. option of almost a zero interest rate. Yeah, that's one way I always try to think of the market. I think I talked about this last time, and you know, right after the great financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it was very stylish to be bearish and a perma bear. And I was writing newsletters that I stated last time that were highly optimistic, suggesting that the market was grossly undervalued. It almost seemed silly at the time, but I was basically taking in, into account. You have to. I think you have to when you're discounting future earnings. It's, there's a discount rate, and when you had a Ten-year Treasury back then around two and a half percent, and the Standard and Poor's five hundred index dividend yield was somewhere around two percent. It just led me to the conclusion that I think everybody had it wrong, uh, and the markets were grossly undervalued, and then they turned out to be. Um, we talked about this last time, and suddenly we have a now the ten-year Treasury rate. It's, it's come back a bit, but it's still under one percent. It's around point nine percent per year, and a thirty-year Treasury bond is in the upper one point seven or eight percent per year last I looked, which is about the same dividend rate as you can earn currently on the Standard Poor's five hundred index also. So I think I I suspect that's kind of though I, I shouldn't yeah. even think that I know what's in a Nobel right. Prize winner's head, but I well, suspect the saying the same they're, thing. They're, uh unlike uh, other areas where there's uh a lot of agreement. Nobel Prize winners in economics don't always agree. Uh, Gene Fama, who's the one that uh, you would probably yeah. uh, deal with more often, is saying it's simply a, a kind of um, situation where you, you don't want to predict and don't want to take chances. And uh, Robert Schiller is the other who said that in the long run, macroeconomic conditions and price to earnings and so on do make a difference. And he's usually been the one who's saying we're we're getting too excited and things are overvalued. Now he's saying that's not. So again, uh, this is never a suggestion to jump in or jump out. Right. It's, it's just a situation that uh, looks fairly favorable for the uh, foreseeable future. It's really big picture views where you really can't, it's, you can't, you can't create any rules out of it, uh, though some people try. Um, but I think he's right. I think valuation does matter. What you pay for something does matter. But, you know, it always has to come down to compared to what also at the same time. And you have to be, I, I, I was driving around and happened to be listening to WLS on Sunday morning, and I heard uh, one of these financial shows, and they told me that uh, modern port- portfolio theory is no longer applicable, and uh, what you need to do is to protect your gains but still capture all the upside. <laughs> so there's still uh, free lunches that are, people are trying to sell you that aren't really free. Well, look uh, – that's about all I have to hear, you know, and I can tell you exactly what products they sell, having never heard the show. Um, people that espouse that are either just uh, horribly bad at math or they're really they're, they understand the math and they know what they're doing is selling crap. And that that to me is evil. So I'll give them the benefit that they're just probably not real bright. Not very. This is not very nice, Paul. Today <laughs> were you watching the Grinch last night? What's going on? <laughs> it's a dang COVID. Yeah. Fred, I got to ask you this. Now I haven't checked the source, and I don't know that it's even a credible source. But I don't have any reason to doubt it at the yeah. moment. <clears throat> I'll check it. So I'm not going to take it for gospel. But I don't know if you ever heard of this guy, the Grumpy Economist. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, John Cochran. Yeah, I know he's a well-known economist. Okay, so it's, uh, I. Uh, it's, it's I Okay, so I occasionally read his stuff. It's usually Uh, aligned with sometimes with what I think. But he was going into the vaccine, and I'm not going to make this political. It's not my point. It's more from economics. Um, He was suggesting that about who should get the vaccine in the first place, that the free market should reign, uh, which is 
the opposite of probably what we're going to do. We'll distort right. the free market in, in many ways. But you bring up some interesting arguments. Here's what caught my attention. In part two of his most recent blog, and it's, it, this is the cost of perfection. We had the vaccine the whole time. Documents David Wallace, and if this guy's a Stanford guy, I doubt he cited a report that's silly. Right. Uh, Wells in New York's Intelligencer, uh, documenting and popularizing a known but overlooked fact. Moderna's mRNA-1273, which reported a 94.5% efficacy rate, on November 16th had been designed by January 13th. This was two days after the genetic sequence had been made public. Uh, the Moderna vaccine took all of one weekend. I just think the sheer innovation yeah. is just, I mean, that, to me, that's more interesting. Yeah. It was completed before China had even acknowledged that the disease could be tr transmitted from human to human more than a week before the first confirmed coronavirus, coronavirus case. I always butcher the word coronavirus because I have my, just quick sayings at home. I, I'll make up names, so sometimes I get them confused. The vaccine had already been manufactured and shipped to National Institutes of Health for the beginning of its phase one. That's by the time the first American death was announced. And first of all, I'm fascinated by that fact. Yeah. If it, if it, I, don't, I don't have any reason to doubt it. it just as soon as we seem like as soon as we crack this the genome sequencing, yep. things are going to naturally come quicker. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. He gets into this idea from a regulatory standpoint that, you know, the FDA yeah. slow walks things and they don't have any incentive but to do otherwise. He said, why couldn't we have said, hey, let free markets work. Let people understanding the risks reported ahead of time. Hey, you know, yeah. this is not a for sure thing. Yeah. We haven't really done random trials and let people sign up instantly and decide for themselves whether maybe that might be worth their while. He said, because ultimately what happens is they ship it to the FDA and they go and do random trials yeah. in phase one. It's kind of the same thing. From an economic standpoint, are we messing with free markets? Well, uh, we're messing with markets, but they're not exactly free. I mean, the, the medical care, health care the ideally it, it, free is, is so uh, uh, burdened with all kinds of regulations and, uh, and people don't pay the cost of their uh, their services and things of that sort that makes it very difficult. So maybe going back to if you really did have a free market in health care, but again, most people don't really pay on a pre-use basis for most of their health care. It would be kind of complicated. The other thing, which I usually uh, agree with uh, Cochran, but uh, in retrospect, there may have been 300 uh, new vaccines uh, True. developed in the first few weeks and maybe uh, – 297 didn't work. So, I mean, looking back on it and saying this was the right answer is like, say, I should have bought, uh, uh, purchased a certain stock so many years ago. So, uh, again, uh, it w I, I don't think it would hurt anything if people were fully informed, but it's probably not going to work in the kind of, uh, of uh, healthcare situation we live in where there are right. kinds of. Uh, it's, it's kind of fractured fairy tale land, I know. But and again, I, I think but, he's but, just saying, you know, let people decide for themselves. Right. But again, uh, Two days is really fast, but uh, less than a year is also uh, super fast in terms of we've got things done now that uh, probably have never done in history in terms of the speed of uh, getting things tested and uh, and very close to being available. So even a year, a year of uh, considerable pain is very fast compared yeah, to Yeah, but we have, we've had a few hundred thousand. Then we're going to shift gears because this really isn't about the show, but from an economic and, I don't know, perspective, it just seems like we're – we get in the way. We just, you know, there's 300,000 people roughly have died from this. Yeah. Uh, is there a, is there a better way? I'm, well, I'm sure there, there probably there, is, there, but I don't I mean, know what it is. There's, so there's another uh, un, unrelated but similar similar kind of situation that uh, uh, some people argue that leaving the market uh, to work is the best way to deal with famines. And you say, well, that's not right because all these people are starving. And you need to get the food to the starving people as fast as possible, and that's. That's right, but in actuality, uh, when you start shipping uh, food to underdeveloped countries and uh, the, the dictator there decides to use it right. for his own political purposes. So again, uh, ideally, if you had a, a system you could plan out and, and work effectively, that's probably the best way. But, often, but, but nobody often ever else. comes up with one, right. ever. Right. And, and it seems like all these things are good intentions. I mean, who, who's against feeding people you know, yeah. in famine or who's against this or that? 
it's just this 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 distrust of the market right. pricing mechanism to move goods. Yeah. I think that's that's a big hurdle for a lot of people. Sure, I, I really do. I'm not saying the free market thinking is right necessarily. I've I've learned at age 61 to preface most of my theories with, I don't really know what you know that I, what I'm saying is well, true. There's a story about feel. that. The price gouging is another area where. Uh, when something bad happens, uh, price of fuel goes up or something. But there, the case was with uh, masks that someone was selling masks that cost probably a dollar to produce for twenty dollars, and 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 they said, "Well, you're, you're gouging prices." Someone else said, "Well, your mask costs twenty dollars. This other place listed them for three dollars." And the person said, "Well, well, go buy them from the three dollar person." Well, they don't right. have any, so right. Uh, so again, the, the the price mechanism does work, but it has some. Uh, Kind of uh, cosmetic features that don't are not particularly attractive. And when we come to healthcare, it's like so many things that we look at today. You really have to go back decades to figure out what happened to get us to where we are. What is, it, is it true that after World War II we had some f- uh, wage freezes, right? And because of that, that's when healthcare being played by the, paid by the employers became more popular because right. I can't. Increase your wage, but I can give you more benefits. Yeah, it, was so a way, it seems it was, like the seeds of all this was right. sown some sixty or seventy years ago, seventy some yeah. odd years ago. And again, we 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 try to change, it, but we haven't uh, been able to. So healthcare, there's no particular reason why healthcare should be uh, directly linked to a job. It, it makes people uh, uncertain if they lose their job or yeah. they want to move from one job to another. But uh, again, that's a, a healthcare is a, a long story that we probably don't want to. And it's boring. <laughs> and it's boring. Let's face it. Well, they're talking about another aid package. It seems a little more realistic that it has uh, more of a shot. It doesn't include the $1,200, hmm. you know, paychecks that go to, you know, payments to people. But it seems like it goes, you know, talk about almost a trillion dollars. I mean, yeah. that's, that's not, you know, that's right. real money. And what's your sense, Fred, is you just, your eyeballs and you're looking through the, the windshield and you go, it, it looks to me like we're in this precarious position anecdotally. I mean, I can see at this point, if there isn't something done immediately, and I'm talking in days, if not in the next 10 days, I think just like in any town, I think you'll see two-thirds of your restaurants gone. Yeah. Any of the smalls or even ones you thought were big, anything that's not a non-chain, I think, but it's more likely than not to go away. And chains are not <laughs> immune from yeah. uh, the same kind of problems. That, uh, right. That it's really, I mean, you lose all your customers uh, and you have uh, lots of expenses. Uh, the writing's on the wall. There was an article in the paper uh, yesterday. The uh, Union League Club in Chicago is a private club that operates like a hotel and a restaurant, and they're losing huge amounts of money, so they have a Monet painting that they own, which is a, their pride and joy, but they're going to sell it because – is keeping the painting versus keeping the the place open. Yeah, it seems like we're so close to the solution, or the solution really is in front of us, but yeah. it's 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 measured in months probably. Right. That if we're in this precarious situation, it would seem that we we probably need to helicopter in some money just right. to keep the but patient alive. We get this, the, the the same issue that is always there is that uh, you can do it fast, you can do yeah. it carefully, but you can't do it both. So if if you do it fast, you're going to end up. Gave a lot of money to basically uh, uh, dead men walking that are not going to uh, ever make it. But is, if you, is if you that, try, to, try to make that decision, then it takes a lot longer to, to do. Instead. I don't think we have time either. I, I think there's this tip over point in any economy. You would know yeah. as 19 is to 1 more than I do. But it, it strikes me that there's a practical side where there's a there's a comes a point where the things grind down and suddenly you're not even in a recession you're in a depression. Yeah, and and in that case you're probably willing to make some mistakes in terms of handing out the money just to get things moving again. And again, the the argument about uh, one one of the knocks on it. Well, a lot of the money is going to big firms. Well, big firms have uh, problems just like small firms. Right. And if you and a big firm going out of business has. Uh, a much bigger footprint than a small one. Because so if the big you, ones are going under, the little ones are going under too. But so I mean, it's, so it's not one or the other. But you, you can't uh, you can't simply say give it to small firms because it has to be the the whole spectrum. But there goes another example how the typical person wants to put in their distorted view of how stuff should work as yeah. opposed to letting the marketplace. Yeah. Not that it's perfect, mm-hmm. but I'll take that over distorted markets. Right. Well, uh, th- again, this is. We're in a situation where we're operating outside the market, and that, that shows the difficulty of making these complex kind of decisions. Well, we're heading into the end of the year, Ryan. 
and there's lots of things to think about. And Fred, please join in because you, I don't think of everything, Fred. You remind me of that every now and then. Um, Paul wrote a Paul Jr. Uh, recently published, I guess republished, published his updated year-end personal finance checklist. I think it was about four years ago he did it for the first time. He's updated each year. Covers 35 year-end personal finance checklist. Uh, items spanning six categories, investments, retirement accounts, taxes, insurance, estate planning, and just general financial planning. You can check it out on our website, rudywealth.com. We posted the link onto it and our company Facebook as well. Um, with 35 things to think about, I almost guarantee you'll find something that applies to you if you read it. Uh, but I think today, Ryan, I'd like to just hunker down on some of the bigs. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to investments, um, what comes to your mind I think the biggest picture, the biggest item of of all these is just making sure that your stock to bond allocation is in the right place and where you wanted it to be. Uh, Assuming, I know, and this is an assumption, you have a financial plan and know that you want it to be in a target. And for folks that don't have one, uh, that would be a time to really start thinking about what is the goal of this money? When is the money going to be needed? And define how much you should have in stock and bonds and write it down and have a financial plan built around this because otherwise you're just drifting like we said before kind of like a, a bobber on the sea you're just at the whim of the ocean going up and down and up and down and and that leads itself to potentially making um poor decisions when things aren't going well you say well the stock market's down i gotta i have to limit my my losses and i'm gonna right. sell now right which is so common and we see you know Time and time again, every time we have a yeah. a downturn, what do we see? Money flows out of mutual funds and into cash, yep. uh, historic highs like we saw. Um, and you know, if if you don't have a plan, of course you're going to be susceptible to to fear. You know, you can't help but turn on the TV or the radio or wherever you may be and and hear maybe the doomsday scenario. So if you have a plan in advance before one of these scenarios shows up, it might give you a little more of that steely stomach to try to stay. Uh, stay invested or stay at the target you're supposed to be. Yeah, so. so you're either continuously acting on a plan or you're continuously reacting to current events. And my experience is if you don't have, it doesn't have to be complicated. I think one of the things, guys, people think about when they hear a retirement plan or financial plan, they think there's going to be this giant binder with all kinds of information. It could be one-page plan. The purpose of my money is so that to help me sustain a lifestyle and keep up with my cost of inflation. And therefore, I've determined that my stock allocation, uh, one that historically would have achieved that with room to spare, would be 60% stocks or 70% stocks, and the balance being income-producing assets. It can be as simple as that. It's just a more purposeful way to understand that my money is pointed at something. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I know that my allocation is right because my allocation is aligned to that plan. What about asset location, which types of assets? First of all, how important is that? And should it be thought about? Asset location is important, but it is by no means on the scale of uh, making sure your stock to bond ratio is at a right target. So this would be one of those items you could do after you've made sure your stock to bond ratio is right. Um, Again, only you would know that. Or if you need advice, call an advisor um, that you could trust to try to give you a little bit of guidance. But um, with the asset location, the, the whole point here is just not leaving extra money on the table and uh, putting certain investments in a taxable brokerage account are better than maybe putting them elsewhere or putting bonds in a taxable brokerage account would be better to put those bonds into an IRA or your 401k because all the income that's going to be kicked off of those bonds will be deferred until uh, you take that money out of the 401k or the IRA rather than paying it year in, year out in a taxable brokerage account. So it's very simple ways you can try to just pick up a few extra points and save some some taxes yeah. along the way. Of course, now with interest rates so low, it's a little less important, the stocks being in the taxable account and the bonds. Of course, now we think our Roth accounts, we want our highest growth-oriented assets there. So I agree with you. I think it's hyped a lot, asset location. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of like picking up a few pennies here and there, and mm-hmm. well, why not pick them up? What about if a, a year like this is kind of a – poster board for a year where rebalancing is probably a little more frequent. We go into the early part of the year, we, within a few weeks, the broad U.S. market falls by a third. Uh, a lot of plans then suddenly are underweighted stocks compared to bonds if they wanted to hold true to their allocation between stocks and bonds. And now we get one of the most 
we go, oh, we get one of the best uh, Novembers ever for small cap stocks and some, and just for the stock market period, it's been one of the best Novembers. But the whole springboard out of the March bottom is almost unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Dave was telling me that he's back to rebalancing once again. Yeah, I, I, we're all in the same boat. So yeah, we've seen this wild pendulum swing in a period of eight months. It's it's a historic year from that standpoint. So, you know, any time that you're, in this case, here we are in November, December timeframe, looking at our, our portfolios rebounding and now they're, they're getting out of target, well, we need to pare back some of those gains. And that simply just means sell some of the stock positions that are above, let's say, our target. Let's say it's 60% stocks and they've grown to 65%. We're going to sell those back, buy bonds in the place so that we rebalance back to that target of 60% stocks, 40% bonds in this scenario. And again, the whole point is it's, we're never trying to predict what's happening next. It's not a market calls, oh, I think this is going to happen. That's why I'm doing a rebalance. But in, the entire purpose of the, the rebalancing process is we had a plan in the beginning that said regardless of market conditions, up or down or flat, we're trying to stay uh, very close to this target model. And so we're always just trying to make sure that we're not drifting too far up or down. So a lot of people um, have a junk drawer of old 401k plans and, th- and things like that, IRAs. Sure. It's probably a good time to actually probably take an inventory of that, would you say, and maybe work towards simplification? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't need to be that way. I think it's really easy to lose sight of some of those older plans that, you know, if you've changed jobs a, a handful of times, you're likely to have an old 401k that might still be with that old employer. Um, and a lot of 401k plans allow you the option to potentially roll old 401k funds from an old employer into your current employer. It's unique to each employer's plan, so you just have to look at your individual employer's plan. But generally, that's a pretty common provision. And the simple thing here is that, well, if you're able to do that, you have less accounts, you're going to have less fees, you're going to have less trading expenses if you're trying to rebalance because everything's in one house. Um, And then, of course, there is a nice... Uh, tax code item too is if if you left the money in the 401k or you rolled it to an IRA, uh, you can only access that IRA minus a few exclusions at 59 and a half. Whereas if you rolled that old money that might be in an old 401k into your current 401k uh, and you retire at age 55 or shortly after, you have access to all that money rather than having to wait to 59 and a half with an IRA. Without paying the penalty. Without paying an extra penalty, exactly. So it gives you a nice tax option that way beyond just being a simplification or a cleaning house and just putting everything in one spot. And Fred, you brought one up last show uh, about capital gains distribution, right. watching out for that. This is a time, I, I don't know whether it happened yet or not. So. We're kind of right in that target yeah. zone. And and what Fred brought up last uh, last show two weeks ago was if you if you have a taxable account, a non-tax privileged, you know, non-retirement account, it's just a brokerage account. He's like, "Wow, I just came into some money. I'm going to buy some stock mutual funds." December's a real a month where a lot of the heaviest distributions are paid, and you don't want to what they call buy the dividend or buy the distribution. You don't want to wait and, and ask when, when you're looking at it. Find out you want to buy it after they've paid those dividends and paid the capital gains treatments. What about selling losses or harvesting gains? I think a lot of people. Think more about the former than the latter. Sure. So, you know, either one is a, is a scenario to work from at this point in the year. Um, you know, maybe back in March, we were doing tax loss harvesting where positions in a taxable brokerage account uh, had been valued at less than the amount the person had contributed. Uh, so you're able to sell those, book the loss for the year, um, and then it offsets income for the year or other gains if there were. And in this case, we have now the upside, we have the gains. So, uh, if you have gains and you're in a low tax bracket, uh, maybe this year you're in a, a 12% tax bracket, and then in the future years, maybe if you have more uh, sources of income or Social Security starting to show up, you're going to be in a higher tax bracket. You can harvest those gains at a lower tax rate now than you would be able to in the future. So it just gives you a, a tax arbitrage, a simple ability to pay less now than you would otherwise. Um, and it's certainly wise to take a look at how much income you have now and what if you're able to do that, maybe even a 0% long-term capital gains rate. And we look at that for our clients as well. And we always think about contributing to our IRA accounts uh, mm-hmm. that are outside of our 401k plans. I mean, you have really till next tax time to do it, but earlier. I always try to tell people, my wife thought this was genius when I came up with my saying that 
the earliest dollars you invest are your most powerful dollars. Uh, probably not a life changer whether you do it in December versus April, but right. still, why not? Yeah, if the money's sitting there and you and you have no ties to it, then by all means. I know a lot of folks uh, will potentially take their um, you know their tax return and then turn that into an IRA contribution in the spring. Right. So I think that's probably why the government has that that delay. But yeah, if you've got it, you might as well put it in. It gives you an extra maybe four months or so of growth. Um, you can't get back if, if you do it later. And one of the things that there's a, there's a certain number of people because their incomes are too high, they don't qualify for a Roth IRA. But, mm-hmm. you know, I try to encourage them to consider what we, they call a backdoor Roth is where you take that money, you put it in that you would have put in a Roth if you could have. You put it in a traditional IRA, but a non-deductible IRA. You let just a little bit of time pass and you convert that to a Roth. Um so, you know, really anybody can do a Roth IRA if they'll follow the backdoor Roth. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but as food for thought out there just hit me that I'm, something I want to mention that if you want to do a Roth but you think your income's too high, there are ways to do it. Yeah, and I'd suggest if you're doing that, speak with a tax advisor or a financial planner because it is complicated and there's a lot of pitfalls that could, you know, get you caught up and it actually backfires, so... Of course. Now, what about you can also do the same with SEP IRAs. It's obviously a time to think about making your contributions if you haven't fulfilled them for the year. Of course, you do have more time beyond the end of the year. But it's just things we think about towards the end of the year. It's just only natural. Um, we want to make sure that if you intended to max out your 401k, um, why not take a look yep. at your statement to make sure you did that? That right. seemed to make some sense. So you can contribute $19,500 a year in uh, in your 401k, uh, that's aside from the money that your employer can contribute. So if you have the ability to and you you want to fill up that bucket, you know this is the last chance to do so. Um, you know, end of the year items too. I think about uh, a, if anyone has college age kids funding a 529 plan. That's one of those items where you can't you can't contribute retroactively in the spring for this 2020 year. So if you do want to put any contributions in on behalf of somebody. The deadline is the end of the year. And you get a 5%. Uh, for the 5% Illinois tax credit. Yeah. Four nine five, yeah. Yep. Which or is a deduction. nice, yeah, if you purchase the <clears throat> Illinois plan, uh, absolutely. And you, those funds can be used outside of the Illinois, outside of Illinois, j- virtually anywhere. Um, that's generally the question we get. And I know Dr. Gertz, we always kind of joke about you making your contributions or trying to wait and see when when's the you know best or opportune time to do so. And we always say we never know, but, you know. Yeah, well, this is... <clears throat> Uh, I do it every year, and this year is the worst of all because <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the uh, market's going to be at the, the high. Off. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the tax strategies I learned about um, just for it's very simple. It's just for five twenty nine plans. If you have the assets available to contribute for a year in in a five twenty nine plan, and you get a down a downtime event like we saw back in March April timeframe. Um, that's the opportune time to put it in. You don't know if that's the low. That's obviously not yeah. the point. We're not trying to time the low. But the whole point is every dollar that goes in uh, theoretically will grow far you know, far more than what it would have uh, been otherwise. And it's all tax-free. So the whole point is get as much growth as possible. And if someone's got you know, many years out toward co- towards college, you know, that's the opportunity. I think a big thing to think about before year end, really, and you don't want to wait to the last minute either this year is when, if you're contemplating do a Roth conversion. I mean, we know taxes, if nothing else is done in four years or so, are going to go up because the current tax law changes. Um, but even outside of that, it's probably important every year. I know we do it for our clients and make, see if it makes any reason to do a Roth conversion this year few more reasons this year, but one big one is a lot of people weren't forced to take, nobody really was forced to take the required minimum distribution. So we were able to take advantage of doing Roth conversions with that money if it made sense mm-hmm. uh, to do so. Um, but yeah, I know you guys, when you're looking through every the plan, that's one of the things you do annually to try to figure out whether you should harvest losses, harvest uh, long-term capital gains, do a Roth conversion, a little bit of each. Um, but that does have a time, you know, if we want to do a Roth conversion for this year, we want to get it that done yep, before cer- the end of the year. Certainly. And, and those are like competing for resources, too. So mm-hmm. if you do harvesting gains or you do Roth conversions, they're, they're all kind of tracking against the total amount of money that you have left to do those kinds of uh, moves. But the whole point is that, you know, if this is a consideration, mm-hmm. now is the time. Um, and I'll just make a note about doing these things, too, that all, 
everybody's thinking generally at the end of the year, it's time to get all these last minute prep items done. If you're thinking about doing any of these kinds of things, do it as soon as you possibly can because all the big brokerage houses, the the custodians, Schwab, Fidelity, whoever it may be that you where, where your funds are, they get absolutely slammed at the end of the year. So processing paperwork, getting everything <clears throat> done takes longer. Uh, so doing it sooner rather than later. And I noticed that the CARES Act, and I only noticed this recently, that there's a provision in there that anybody can take a $300 above-line right. charitable deduction. Uh, I guess it's part because of the COVID-related. Yeah. And it's I, just one year only. Yeah, just right. just this year. So if norm, you know, if you think, well, if I did my deduction, even if it's $300, I don't get any tax benefit, well, now you get some tax benefit. Right, and you may already have done it and not realize it, so you have to make sure that you document it so you can mm-hmm. claim that. So it's, you're saving 50 or or $100 maybe. And one of the things, what about donor advised funds? I mean, there's, you know, all the bro- major brokerage firms have have them. I know the Community Foundation <clears throat> in town has a donor advised fund. Can you explain donor advised funds and, and why that might be appropriate for people in any given year? Yeah, this became real popular just with the major tax change and how most people now have uh, just the standard deduction rather than itemizing. Uh, because previously, we could itemize taxes, claim uh, all these donations above a, a very small threshold uh, compared to your, age, your adjusted gross income. And now with the high standard deduction, most people don't have a, a filing that's an in- itemized tax deduction. So you can't generally get any money back for these deductions or for these contributions to charity or whatever it may be. So what a donor-advised fund does is it allows you to contribute maybe several years' worth of um, contributions or donations that you would want to make to a particular uh, group. You can contribute it all in one year, and then you can choose um, to distribute it out over a period of several years. But the whole point for you as the, the contributor is you get the tax benefit in that, that one year for the entire contribution, and you have the ability to distribute it out as you need or want to to whoever it might be. It doesn't have to be the same charity, uh, but it gives you the control of when it goes out with the, the advantage of the tax deduction on the front end. And some ways of thinking about that, because the new high standard deduction is a lot of people think, well, I'm not going to get to be able to deduct it yeah. outside of that 300. And then we say, well, if you've committed to uh, an organization you dearly love that's a charitable organization for the next five years, to the extent you can, try to bunch <clears throat> them into one year or two years and mm-hmm. take advantage of that deduction. Right. And if at the same time you're fortunate enough to be able to maybe prepay your real estate taxes and do all these things in one particular year, then maybe you might only be able to do that every few years. Sure. But you know, if you're in a higher tax bracket that year, it might make some sense to try to stretch and do some of these things all in one year. Right. And it gives you flexibility. You can uh, have the donations occur wherever you want while the funding occurs all at once. Right. The other thing is that if people are, are in the uh, super old category, uh, you can pay out of your uh, uh, IRA and, and make a, a charitable deduction that uh, is not not ta- you don't have to pay the tax when it comes out. Which is yeah, a, a we have thing. a lot of people, Fred, uh, quite a few clients that just don't spend their whole required minimum distribution in a given year, but they, they are qu- – tend to be charitable at the same time. So with that qualified uh, distribution out of your IRA, in other words, you don't have to kind of report it on the top line and then, you know, take the deduction and your itemized. You just get to say, okay, if uh, if I want to give $50,000 to my church and my I could take it out of my, my required minimum distribution and just do it directly from there. Is and you don't have to itemize either. Right. Then no. you're not itemizing. You're not, you're not claiming the income and then taking the deduction. You're just doing it all in one. Just keep records. Uh, you know, some custodians are not keeping records of who got the money. I know if we do. We literally do it on a spreadsheet for each client. Uh, Rose, our head of our operations, does that. Just so. And the best thing is to never take possession of the money. Have it go directly from the retirement fund to the charity. Right. In our case, clients just give us a list of money that they want to have go to various organizations, the contact people, and then we get checks sent right from their IRA, right from Charles Schwab. It's kind of uh, just—it's almost a relief to people that oh, you'll take care of it. I'll you get it all done. Yeah. Of course, I put my name on it, and tell them the donations right. from me, and then I get all the perks. <laughs> what about insurance? Uh, well, before that, what about because um, Paul didn't put them all down here today, but one big one I think of seems like once a year I always think of it as uh, beneficiary designations. Mm-hmm. It seems like. They can get away from you, uh, like, hey, I think my wife's the, the beneficiary, or I think this, or I think that. 
do a little, in, maybe a little audit of your beneficiaries um, with all of the places you have. Yeah, it's, it's a quick know. phone call. I mean, for you want to do this for your 401ks or your 403b, whatever type of investment account right. you have through work, any personal IRA accounts that you may have, uh, your life insurance, if you have life insurance. Um, because the whole point is here, if something were to happen to you when you die, you want to make sure uh, that those funds go to where you want them to be uh, with as little issue and delay as possible. So for most folks, if you're married, that's to go to your spouse. Um, maybe uh, you can also set up contingent beneficiaries too. So if your spouse, uh, for whatever reason, predeceases you, uh, that the money goes to the children if that's your scenario. But the whole point here is that you have very simple control mechanisms in place through all of these kinds of accounts to ensure that you can get the money to your loved ones after you die. And it's very easy to forget if you signed up with a, a company you know, five, ten years ago, and you don't recall who you put in as your de your beneficiaries, and that may have changed. I've seen cases, of course, after 37 years, you see a lot, but kind of like farmer's insurance. Isn't that their gig? We've seen a lot. Um, I've seen cases where if we had not done that audit, uh, an ex-wife is still the beneficiary of a large sure. IRA, uh, and, hey, there's no change in it after you wake up on a cloud, that's for yeah. sure. And wills don't uh, wills, supersede the – Correct. Mm -mm. So that just goes as a matter of law, and so you really, it's worth taking a look at that. Did you send a, just a handful of, or maybe a whole bunch of uh, divorced husbands scurrying <laughs> to their paperwork right now? That they're, they're I made a lot of enemies <laughs> from their ex-spouses. Yeah, it's not just the wives. It's, sometimes it's the other way around. <laughs> uh, you know, like in my case, <laughs> it be the other way around. Of course, I'm not divorced, but. Anyway, and of course, we can contribute to health. If you can contribute to a health savings account, make sure that you've taken as much opportunity as you want on that. And I guess we would also include flexible spending accounts, make sure that you've spent all you want from it and put everything in it you want yeah. by the end of the year. The uh, health savings account you can do retroactively. So those, you know, you can, you can fund in the spring as well. So it's kind of tough. There's so many of these. Some you can, some you don't. But the health savings account you can do retroactively. So. Of course, then it comes down to estate planning. I know this isn't exciting, but I still believe that half the prospective clients that walk into my office have not done the things you're going to talk about now that you might yeah. want to make sure that you have taken care of. Yeah, it, it's, it's surprising, but I'm not surprised how many people don't have a will, especially later in life. Um, it's one of those things that's not fun to go through. I, I, I went through it and it was a bit of a process, but it was actually very relieving to have it done and know that it was in place. Uh, but having a simple will in place is not that difficult. Um, but the whole point is, again, it's about the control of your assets and providing for those that maybe you love dearly or the institutions if, if, if you wanted to bestow money to institutions or charities that you love as well. The whole point is that there's a control in place post uh, your living on this earth that allows you to, to efficiently move those assets to those people. Um, typically in a, in a married, uh, married scenario and a husband or a wife dies, either one, it's such a catastrophic event. Uh, anything that you can do to try to simplify, um, your, you know, your heirs lives is, is advisable. So name the bigs. <laughs> so a wills, number one, uh, a living trust. Generally, most people could benefit from having a living trust, which is simply a document that says, uh, when I die, anything that I owned essentially pours in this trust. Uh, it's protected. If it's not already in it. Yeah, if it's not there already, it ensures that those assets don't go through what's called the probate process. Probate's a, a legal uh, process to make sure the assets get divided. Uh, generally, you want to avoid that if you can because uh, it's lengthy and it can be quite costly. Uh, so, again, it just comes down to the to the expediency of moving things to where so it So just ask be. your advisor or your attorney, hey, is that something that I might be able to benefit from? And they'll, they'll be able to tell you rather quickly whether it's just not an exotic thing. You, no, you, it's you, simple. It's just like owning the assets yourself. You can put anything into the trust you want, take anything out. It's your tax ID number. So it's, yeah. it's really doesn't. It's, I think a lot of people, when they think about living trust, they feel like they're giving up something, and, re and really you're not. It's just a way of titling at the end of the day and making sure that it's like a hyperactive will. It also says, here's who gets what at the same time. And I think a lot of folks, too, um, when they hear trust, they think, oh, that trusts are for extremely wealthy people, um, which in some cases there, there might be some you know, reason for that. But so you're saying I don't need a trust? No, 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 not you. <laughs> <laughs> but a living trust is, you know, generally it could be advisable for just about anybody. 
Um, it just again is control and making sure the assets. Do you think those are oversold, Fred? You hear a lot of commercials. I I I wonder why that is. uh, I'm I'm not up to date on this, but there used to be. they're exactly scams, but uh, uh, especially with uh, farmers going around saying put your uh, your assets in the trust and you can do all kinds of good things. And you're right, you can, but you have to do it right. So I don't know whether there's still people out selling trusts. Uh, I think for a while it was kind of treated as like it's an exotic thing, and if you don't have one, you're really missing something yeah. special. And to some degree it's true, but I think it was probably a way of gathering assets. If I can get people to come to my seminar, yeah. then maybe – I can also give them my whiz bang investment. Right. I'm so skeptical. Yeah. The other so thing about uh, about wills is probably also uh, updating it. I think my uh, my will is out of date, not in a serious way, but it goes back to the A and B, right? And and then uh, all kinds of contingencies about the age of children, and they're beyond the age that the uh, the, the the things we go into effect. So those are irrelevant and. Who would take care of children? So you might want to just update it just to get everything. Yeah, I've been uh, told that kind of there's just some cleanup language, you know, based on the last four or five years language that probably tightens them up a little bit. And I think a lot of people also forget about Illinois does have an inheritance tax. And that's another thing that if you're a wealthy family, millions of dollars, um, certainly something to bring up. If you bring it up, if you just talk to an estate planning attorney, they're going to pick it up themselves. But even if you're just talking with your financial advisor, you can ask them, hey, do you think is there any reason that I need to think about a different type of estate plan to, to escape that? Um, I'm just looking through the list. Healthcare directives, yeah. How yeah, about that? I was gonna say that was the one thing I didn't touch on yet is the healthcare piece. So, in the event that you're incapacitated, uh, you want to have maybe your wishes um, written down so that you know if if you want to be resuscitated, you will be, or if you choose not to, then you won't be. Um, it gives a power to your spouse or whomever you designate is the ability to make those decisions and your inability to do so. So it's important to have. Um, you can then provide them to your local hospital uh, so that they're on file and there's no delay. I think if people want to give them a gift uh, to themselves and they haven't done so already, I, it's, it's, it's from what I read, about half the people do not have even a basic financial plan. And I think if people would just give themselves a gift of even if it's a one-page, sensible financial and or retirement plan, they're going to be happier. That sounds corny, doesn't it? But it's been studied, actually. The people that have financial plans tend to be just overall happier and and less concerned and less worried and less stressed. And who wouldn't want that? And you could do one by yourself. I'm not suggesting that you you have to go to a planner to do it. You just have to be deliberate, and you have to deal with just the main issues what assets do I have? What income streams do I have? What do I want from these? Is my asset allocation historically, would it have been aligned properly? Um, what do I do in the event of market disruptions, you know, things that bother us? And how do we prevent the common mistakes? I think that would be the number one thing that if I could get people to do with or without me, with would be just fine. <laughs> I don't think I can handle them all, Fred. Um, but just the establishment of a financial plan, like I said, even if it's a, a just written one-pager or two-pager, it's also nice just to be able to revisit that. And uh, I think people, if they really – we've had enough stress in 2020. Mm-hmm. This does sound kind of corny. And th- this could be a, a New Year's resolution. It's not necessary to do it before December 31st. Of course. Uh, the other things are time-limited, but th- uh, a plan could be done. A month from now or so. And what about emergency funds? Have either of you uh, fellas uh, – I'll speak for myself. My idea of an emergency fund reserves, I think it's probably now three times higher than I might have right. said before. Just because I'm seeing things I hadn't – it's the essence of risk, right? You see things that nobody thought of. And I could see that for many, many people, probably ought to be a significant focus on making sure that I suppose ideally you could get through a year without a job. Uh, that's a big that's a big number, but just look yeah. at your after tax spending, not your salary, but how much am I taking home after four hundred one ks and healthcare deductions? Suppose you, a couple make seventy five thousand. By the time all the taxes and shenanigans are out, fifty four thousand a month's going to their deposit account. I think you might want to at least have twice that. But I would think if I was counseling somebody yeah. today, I'd say I'd try to build that ultimately to three times. Because we used to think, well, unless you work for the university or the government, but even we've seen there some impact in some, yeah. though not as much as the private market, right. Fred. Right. 
I think that's fair to say. You could also uh, activate, not activate, but make it have it available. The uh, home equity loan would be a, a kind of substitution for that. So you wouldn't have to sell your assets, but you still have access. And again, uh, most things that people invest in outside of retirement accounts are liquid. So yeah. again, you can. You could liquidate bonds, things of that sort. So it depends on your other assets as well. So, so if you don't have these other assets, then the two or three times is probably really important. If you yeah. have substantial uh, liquid assets, you might not uh, have to worry about that as much. Even for people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, maybe even uh, looking into uh, a line of credit attached to a reverse mortgage. Yeah. Uh, you got all this equity in your house. Uh, you never have to use it. But suppose you pay a little bit of money and you now have this line that, you know, in case of glass, case of a emergency, break the glass. There's another source of unlocking that equity in a favorable way, right. maybe one that you don't have to pay back. Right. Um, I'm not promoting them because we have anything to do with them. We don't. We have no attachment to them. But I think it's going to be a. I think it's going to be a financial tool that is going to be more and more talked about and more and more right. utilized as time goes on. You know, somebody has three or four hundred thousand of equity, or two hundred thousand, or one hundred and fifty of equity, and maybe their other assets are limited, and they're worried about either healthcare costs down the road or emergencies. Probably would make sense maybe to investigate and in getting that lined up ahead of time um, before everybody else is trying. The funny thing about lines of credits, I found, and I think any honest banker will tell you. Uh, it's never a lock that, you know, You could, three months ago I could get one. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden the banks are all panicking at the same time, and they really don't want to. They'd like yeah. to call all their lines of credit. They really don't want to issue new ones. Right. I mean, what if you're a restaurant? What bank yeah. is going to say, oh, okay, well, you went through your PPP money. We'll lend you another 100000 yeah. They're not going to do it. Well, I shouldn't speak for all banks, but I'd be. Yeah, there's an old, I, I can't remember the, the, the poem, but, the, you know, it's easy to borrow if you don't need it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So those are some of the things you can do uh, for this year. We may cover. I don't know when we're going to do our next show. Oh, uh, well, I guess it would be. It would be. Yeah. Tw- the, what's today? The eighth. Today's the eighth. So two weeks from now, I guess we will have a show. We'll try to cover some more and see so you guys think of some things. Maybe it's missed. kind of late in the game though for these some of these changes. For some so, of them, the twenty first yeah. is running. You're, you're running into it, so we'll try to just talk about the more boring ones. That's so people should get act get going. Yeah. So for Roth conversions. Uh, Things like that, things that are time sensitive. Um, Five twenty nine deduction in order to get this year's deduction. You can put money in anytime you want. It's just if you want the deduction this year, you got to do it before the year end. Just things to think about. Um, but I really ask people to seriously consider getting a one or a two page financial plan done sometime next year. I think COVID has shown us that we got to expect the unexpected and. When a lot of bad, and usually, you know, if, if our investments are behaving poorly, poorly, it's because the economy is also sort of in chaos. It's not always that way, but generally speaking. And a lot of things that you would think on paper you would normally do just aren't available because everything's on fire at the yeah. same time. Well, using your analogy, uh, uh, people have gotten a really big uh, get-out-of-jail-free card now yeah. because the market's up at all times high after all this turmoil, so you have a chance to make some decisions without making a lot of sacrifices. Yeah, in other words, if, if, if you were really mentally tortured in March and April of, of this year and you weren't sleeping and you didn't do anything, well, okay, well, that's better. That's good. But now, as you said, Fred, use the get-out-of-jail-actually-free card now. Yeah. Our last one came with a few dollars price. Yeah. Uh, and really revisit that asset allocation decision. Well, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz and Ryan Repco, Certified Financial Planner Professional with Rudy Wealth Management. Have a great day, people. Thanks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.